1: Everybody and welcome to The History of England, episode 289, Elizabeth Regina. Now, after the last couple of episodes, I felt there was an unfinished business. I'd gone for a rather crude dramatic approach by jumping ahead from Mary's death to Elizabeth's pre-coronation procession, on the facile and even reprehensible grounds that it's fun. And even the historiography I'd presented was only partially baked, since I would like now to give you some advance warning of the major themes in Elizabeth's reign and some different interpretations folks have had on them. So, you can then keep a notebook by your side to decide which of the arguments you think makes most sense. If it makes it any better, try to think of the previous episodes as a massive party where everyone left at four o'clock in the morning and this episode is the morning after, with all the plates and balloons and streamers to be taken down and all the jelly and ice cream to be dug out of the carpet. By the end, everything will be neatly packed away, I promise. Let us first complete the story of the story, as it were, the historiography. Elizabeth's reign has a few themes which run like threads throughout it, so let us deal with a few of them. Then we might start with the angle that's become most popular recently, the impact on Elizabeth's reign of gender. Let us return briefly to 1066 and all that, just for a moment, if you will forgive me, where there is a revealing gender confusion in the Elizabethan essay question too. In what ways was Elizabeth a bad man, but a good queen? The whole question of how gender affected politics and Elizabeth's life is of course one of the most fascinating and enduring of the reign. First, there's a question of how being a woman affected contemporary views of Elizabeth's right to rule and her popularity. This is a conversation which is almost impossible to start without bringing up John Knox. John Knox obviously kicked off the reign on a conciliatory note, with his variously numbered blasts on a trumpet of unspecified type against the monstrous regiment of women, as he called them, which was written to cook the respective geese of the Catholic Mary's, Queen of Scots and No. 1 of England. It was actually published just as Protestant Elizabeth reached the throne in England, which was something of an unfortunate piece of timing for Knox, but hey-ho, our Knoxie was not a man to take a step back. You might say that Knox was, of course, Scottish, and you might also note that he was reasonably extreme, but John Knox had become for a while part of the English clergy, and Elizabeth was well aware of his views, and suitably contemptuous of them. And as more recent historians have begun to point out, Knox was not alone in his views about women, and the patriarchy more generally was unhappy. It crops up in some court cases, for example, such as the clerk in Kent, who declared that the Queen is not worthy to bear rule or be supreme head of the church. And Elizabeth, of course, was to famously take the title governor of the church, as opposed to supreme head, partly as a concession to such objections. In another court case, a man in Essex described Elizabeth as, but a woman and ruled by noblemen. So, just making a broad assumption that of course Elizabeth was doing what she was told and no more. However, others have taken the view that although her gender affected her reign, people like Knox were seen by Protestant secular lords as slightly embarrassing extremists. And our clerk of Kent, in the example, was treated rather leniently, suggesting such outbursts were rare and not to be too much worried about. They argue that, by and large, Elizabeth's right to rule was accepted relatively easily by the majority of the nation, and jurists in particular argued in favour of the right of women to rule. However, even historians inclined to minimise the resistance to the idea of a queen would agree that, just as it had for Mary, it made the question of her marriage extremely fraught and a matter of high politics from the very moment she became queen. From a very basic view, it affected politics, since there could be no male privy chamber, as there had been under Henry VIII, through which influence could be exercised by politicians. Also, after spending the last, what, nine years podcasting about monarchs who have been exclusively male, suddenly, just like that, three buses come along at the same time in the British Isles with Mary's Tudor and Dolph Scott and Elizabeth. It has proved impossible for historians not to fall into the compare and contrast mode and who can blame them. Traditionally, the stereotypes have been that Mary Tudor was the rather incapable and traditional wife who chose dutiful marriage with disastrous consequences, the flamboyant Mary Queen of Scots who chose love and romance, chose badly and suffered the consequences, and then Elizabeth, the sharp, cold political player who chose a life alone in return for political power. These narratives have been sharply revised more recently. As listeners will know, Mary Tudor's administrative capability has been much restored and the importance of her stand in establishing the rights of queens to be the equal of kings also emphasised, of which Elizabeth was the immediate beneficiary. And it's also been shown how far Mary Tudor restricted Philip of Spain's political influence. More recent approaches to Mary Queen of Scots have stressed her choice of Darnley being perfectly politically justifiable, that her disastrous marriage with Bothwell may have been rape and coercion, a general theme pointing out just how far Mary Queen of Scots was betrayed by the men around her. As far as Elizabeth is concerned then, the traditional approach has a hint of hysteria about it. It's the story of a woman disappointed, wanting desperately to be married, but thwarted by the demands of power and politics. The stories of Elizabeth's determination have been cited to have her household populated by unmarried women only, raging against some who did get married, a sign apparently of a burning with jealousy. And, of course, the perennial question of the nature of her relationship with Dudley... But more recently, again, it's been pointed out there are plenty of reasons why Elizabeth would have wanted unmarried ladies in her household. For purposes of loyalty and political neutrality, women that didn't have a husband in the background egging them on towards some political action or influence. For historians such as Christopher Haig and Susan Duran, Elizabeth seriously considered marriage to Dudley and only in 1561, with the death Dudley's wife, Amy, did she finally turn away. As with her famous quote in 1565 to Dudley that, I will have but one mistress here and no master. Thereafter, they figure Elizabeth used the possibility of marriage purely for diplomatic gain. For Susan Doran, indeed, she did in fact remain permanently unsure. David Lodes identifies the incident with Thomas Seymour as critical when young Elizabeth seemingly came close to being used by an ambitious and unscrupulous man, and he suggests she learned the lesson that for her, marriage would always come with a risk and at a price. There is also plenty of debate then about how Elizabeth does or does not actively use her sexuality as part of political influencing and propaganda. One of Elizabeth's courtiers was the slightly sad Christopher Hatton. Slightly sad because he desperately tried to get the Queen to come and visit him and built a lovely palace to entice her and ruined himself in the process. Something about female spiders eating their lovers, isn't there? I forget. I'm sure I read it when roaming over Corfu with Gerald Durrell in My Family and Other Animals. Anyway, the idea was that as a courtier, you enticed the Queen to visit your sumptuous residence and it brought enormous honour on your house, even if it left you financially destitute as a result and you'd be cleaning up the poo produced by the court for months. Anyway, Hatton tried and tried and built the lovely Kirby Hall, which I had been to and about which I must post on Facebook, but he failed and practically ruined his finances in the process anyway. Anyway, I'm digressing. I am a not? Christopher Hatton, this courtier said that the queen did fish for men's souls, and had so sweet a bait that no one could escape her network. Historians have seen Elizabeth as consciously using gender by manipulating various traditionally gendered roles: nurse, mother, and as Hatton was suggesting, lover. More dramatically. They've also pointed out that she consciously went as far as she could to adopt roles which were traditionally male. Although the taboo against her leading an army or even an advanced paratroop regiment was a bridge too far, she did the next best thing in the most famous of her speeches at Tilbury during the Spanish Armada. It's also suggested that the adoption of this traditionally male role made it impossible for Elizabeth to accept the subservient role of a Tudor marriage. Finally, as Queen, and given the double standards of the day, her gender opened her up to accusations and rumours of immorality, a road travelled enthusiastically but ultimately to nowhere by Catholic writers. Eventually, and super famously, emerged the image of the Virgin Queen from the 1570s when motifs began to regularly appear in her images, such as the rose, phoenix, pelican pansy, star and pearl, which were associated with the Virgin Mary. Now, for some, this was a deliberate thing, noting that the Queen commissioned many of the paintings of herself, and that those commissioned by her courtiers would need to be approved by her. However, in the case of Elizabeth over her 45-year reign... There were simply too many of these pictures for the Tudor state to control effectively. And Susan Doran concludes the image was more accidental than it was planned. OK, well, that's quite enough about sex. Other themes, then. As observed last week, historian John Guy and many others have admired Elizabeth's political skills. For some, this was a matter of encouraging and controlling factional politics. She ruled much by faction, wrote Robert Norton, and William Camden and later her biographer Neil also took the view that Elizabeth was successful in balancing factions and creating a stable court. For Christopher Haig, this had negative impacts, a hothouse atmosphere as factions jostled for position and even childish behaviour such as Essex storming off from court in 1597. A superfluity of flouncing, you might say. However, you might take a completely different view and argue, as does David Lodes, that actually Elizabeth's court, though stuffed to the rafters like any European court, was remarkably faction free. Dudley and Cecil, for example, two key players, agree on some matters of policy and compete on others that there is nothing on the scale of the divisions of Henry VIII's court, for example. A similar argument took place about the role of Parliament in the Elizabethan polity, which traditionally, through her reign, was a reasonably collaborative relationship with evolutionary development of Parliament's importance, that being a general trend, of course, under the Tudors, as we've heard. But then along came Neil... And he did some very exciting work, which seemed to suggest a high degree of organisation, not by a Conservative grouping, but by a radical Protestant group of about 100 MPs, led by a group of activists, returned Marian exiles. Neil dubbed them the Puritan Choir, which I have to say is as good a piece of marketing as you ever like to see. The trouble is that Neil's groundbreaking work was based on the records of a rather extreme Puritan. And as happens in the academic process, of course, later generations of young historians had a look at this tasty concoction and decided to see if they could take it down. And they rather queued up to do so. Elton, Loach, Jones. And the consensus view now is that actually what we are seeing is the silent majority or the empty vessels make more noise thing. Actually, there was a very loud Puritan but no Puritan choir behind him. So it's just that a few activists were very vocal. So the consensus now has rather returned to something close to the traditional view, that the outstanding feature of the relationship between Queen and Parliament was one of cooperation and collaboration. Plus échange, change, plus lmm shows. Finally then, although we could go on forever, let's talk of religion. After all, it wouldn't be a Tudor podcast without religion rearing its head most ugly. So, Elizabeth's religious settlement and the progress of the Reformation and all that. Well, there's the issue of Elizabeth's own religious views, for starters, which we'll need to cover fairly soon. She's been described as broadly agnostic, pursuing Protestantism largely because it made sense politically, diplomatically and emotionally for her and she made sure to keep some of the ceremonial of the old traditional. Now nobody in their right minds describes Elizabeth as a religious zealot but some do emphasise her commitment as being much more devout than the term agnostic would imply. Though all agree that Elizabeth liked more ceremony than the hotter type of Protestant would approve of there is a discussion to be had about the depth of Protestant belief generally in England. So it used to be claimed that the English reside into a sort of folk Catholicism by the likes of Cascarisbrook and Christopher Hague. Whereas now, actually, it's the depth and success of the Reformation under the Elizabethan Church that is emphasised that this is a period when preachers and evangelicals were finally able to do the grassroots work that embedded Protestant practice in the lives and hearts of the English. On the other hand, there is a very live and present battle about radical Protestantism. So the view has generally been that the Elizabethan Church was constantly being pushed to a greater reform by Presbyterians and Puritans, the hotter sort of Protestant, as it were. Historian Patrick Collinson has made it one of his life's work to argue that this is merely the froth from a few very vocal public figures. That the reality on the ground is that England became overwhelmingly a church of the Book of Common Prayer, and that Presbyterians were a minority, and that their organisation was essentially broken by 1590. And that it was in fact Catholicism that was the major threat, and seen to be the major threat. Interesting that I should mention that of course, because what of Catholicism? One of the big stories was the attempt to support and revive Catholicism as it dwindled to become essentially a religion of the well healed. John Boss's view was that the seminary priests who flooded into England from the continent were critical in saving Roman Catholicism from extinction and that they created a new Roman Catholic community which owed much to continental influences. Along came Christopher Hagen, who made a career of saying per sure to historical theories as far as I can see, and he rewrote that particular rubric. His argument was that these priests concentrated only on the low-hanging fruit, gentlemen and nobility in the south and southeast of England, which they could easily get to, in which they were reasonably ineffective anyway, so that Roman Catholicism becomes a rump, gentry community, with few new influences unrestricted to the traditional heartlands in the north of England. This is a little harsh, given what these people gave up and the courage they showed. Doran leavens the bread a little bit, after all. New religions, from Catholicism in the 7th century, England, to England, Germany and Scotland in the 16th centuries, had been implemented by persuading the magistrate or nobility first, so the strategy wasn't necessarily wrong. But apart from that, she basically agrees but also points to the great dilemma and polarisation amongst the Catholics, similar to the Protestants under Mary, in fact, about whether or not to outwardly conform. Now, there are many other crucial topics we shall be covering in more detail as we go. The history of Elizabethan England and Ireland, in particular, is one that every English child should be taught, along with the rest of it, of course. So don't say I haven't warned you. Why did the Tudors step over the line between accommodation with the old English elite in Ireland and go towards conquest, which has been a question for so long? Foreign policy is another, of course. How far Elizabeth was keen, or otherwise, to act as an international champion of Protestantism? Traditionally, she's thought not to have been keen at all. But maybe it is possible to argue otherwise. But we'll see when we get there. That is it, finally and completely, the historiography for the minute. So, now we need to go back to the start and we can spend the rest of the episode seeing Elizabeth properly crowned and all that. So, let me take you back to early November 1558 and first of all, I would like to remind you of a couple of life lessons that hopefully your parents passed down to you through the generations. That A, life can be unkind and that B, life was never meant to be fair. As Mary lay in her terminal illness, the sound of creaking floorboards might be heard. It came from the feet of the courtiers who had buzzed around in Mary's court in worship mode for so long, flattering, complimenting in the hope of reward or to deliver some genuine service. It came from the feet of courtiers, sneaking stealthily away now that Mary seemed to be a busted flush, hid the road and made their way to Hatfield House north of London. There resided the Princess Elizabeth, standing on the edge of the crumbling cliff overhanging the Valley of Queenship, and they came to pay her court. As the Spanish Count Ferreira caustically remarked, everyone wanted to be first to get out, including Ferreira, as it happens. They found one seat there already supporting buttocks parked comfortably in the princess's service, those of a reasonably young man, well, 38 years old, so actually he's pushing it a bit, hardly a spring chicken, but more importantly, the owner of said buttocks was William Cecil. I have been careful to tell William's story as we go along so that you're aware of him, but in case you are not aware, gentle listener, the Cecil-Elizabeth relationship was one of those immortal duos. Wolsey and Henry VIII, Cromwell and Henry VIII, Gladstone and Disraeli, Eric and Ernie, Boycott and Amos, fish and chips, bangers and mash. You know what I'm saying. We've seen Cecil lock horns with the redoubtable Stephen Gardiner, become the right-hand man of the leading political figure of Edward VI's reign, Edward Seymour. We've seen him supporting Jane Grey, but very cleverly making a declaration that he was forced into it, not my fault, gov, saving him from any Marian axes. During Mary's reign, Cecil did not disappear, but he took the Nicodemite route, outwardly conforming while bankrolling a clandestine Protestant printer, working for some of Elizabeth's estates, and he'd become a good friend of Cardinal Paul too. So he was surprisingly close to the centre of power for a man who was an utterly convinced Protestant and determined to do everything to see that his faith survived in a hostile world. But on the day Mary died, the seventeenth of november fifteen fifty eight, Cecil had been working effectively as Elizabeth's secretary already, though not formally appointed until the twentieth. It is relatively easy to see why Elizabeth chose Cecil as her secretary. Now I don't know if you've seen the nineteen ninety eight film Elizabeth, the first one with Kate Blanchett, but Cecil appears in that with his later title of Burley. And he's an avuncular, slightly bumbling sort of figure. In reality cecil was not a and most categorically was not at home to mr bumble cecil had a mind like a pineapple slicer and a frightening capacity for hard work just go and look at one of the pictures of him though probably not the one where he's on a mule holding a flower it's difficult to look dignified on a mule although i don't know no, i'll put it on the website there he is on his mule which is a presumably a classic humble brag, here I am, this great and super powerful person, and look, I'm just riding a mule thing. And actually, look at his eyes, and ouch, hard as nails. This is a man who would most definitely send emails after hours and expect an answer that same night. The Cecil Elizabeth duopoly was without doubt Based on trust and respect, though not always agreement. Here are some of the words Elizabeth added to the counsellor's oath for Cecil when he chined on the dotted line. This judgment I have of you that you will not be corrupted with any manner of gift, and that you will be faithful to the state, and that without respect of my private will, you will give me that counsel you think best. Now, this is a judgment that Cecil would do a fair job of living up to, though you kind of have to interpret the phrase corruption in the early modern idiom. Cecil would relentlessly turn his tax assessment at £133, six shillings and eightpence, whereas, in fact, his income was in the region of a whopping £4,000 per annum. I suppose he would argue that he'd earned it, and he'd had to fork out plenty of his own money in the service of the Crown. But anyway... With the exception of a few side routes, Cecil filled his role about as loyally and diligently as anyone could be expected to, and is one of the great architects of the English state. It is his five hundredth birthday on the thirteenth of September, twenty twenty. Just so you know, the traditional story is that when the news came to Elizabeth on the seventeenth of November, with a full delegation of Mary's counsellors, that Mary was dead, she took a deep breath and reached for a psalm, as you do. I suspect there is a psalm for all seasons. And she proclaimed, This is the Lord's doing, and is marvellous in our eye. Which, you know, unkind. But anyway. This may or may not be true, but either way, what the nervous councillors kneeling in front of their new queen really wanted to know was whether or not they still had a job. Not just any old job, of course since being on the royal council was a key to power, fame and fortune. At some point, either right there or a few days later, Elizabeth gave them the benefits of a speech in which she promised, I mean to direct all mine actions by good advice and counsel. One of the folks listening made the mistake of assuming that meant nobility. It did not. It would most definitely include the kind of professional, bureaucrat servants that Cecil represented very well. Anyway, essentially Elizabeth identified a specific group amongst the current council, those whose presence on the council had been down to a very personal relationship with Mary, some of whom had been with her since Framlingham days. For them, Elizabeth had pretty words and the rough end of a pineapple. Now, I'm not going to list all the privy councils then chosen to serve instead of being in receipt of the said pineapple slice, for this would be dull. But William Howard of Effingham is worth a mensch, just because his son makes it into every single English child's exercise book, I reckon, as supreme commander of the fleet facing the Armada. And Nicholas Bacon became Lord Keeper of the Seal, and that's significant. Bacon was a very close associate of Cecil, his brother-in-law, in fact, but not always in agreement with him, tending to be more conservative than Cecil. He was the last man to be appointed, as it happens. The process seems to have been a bit like the way everyone picked football teams when I was a small child, with the captains picking the best first and leaving the worst to last, which was, you know, not brilliant for the ego, but seriously good for the soul. I speak from personal experience. Anyway, Bacon's dad had been a sheep-reeve, and the nobility might well have been a bit sniffy about his appointment. But he was a sound lawyer, and so he was in. Apart from that, we'll meet more of them along the way, but for the moment, a couple of things. Firstly, there are 19 of them, which is substantially fewer than under Mary, and is part of the rubric of Elizabethan efficiency and Marian general administrative rubbishness. Much revised now, since, of course, Mary's council had a core group of no more than 30 Secondly, there remained on the council some of Mary's advisers, but clerics and Catholics were basically history, ex-councillors. There were six of the great noble families, and the rest might be described as bureaucrats like Cecil. And ten of the council might be described religiously as Henrician conservatives, and nine as the kind of people that Faria would have described as heretics, Protestants. If you cast your mind back to Henry's time, you will remember that there was great play between the privy chamber, the people physically close to the king in his private chambers, and the chamber, the public officers. The privy chamber had real political influence. As with Mary, the fact that Elizabeth was a woman rather changed all that. There would be almost no men in her privy chamber, just one gentleman and one groom but there were a number of women, of course. Four ladies of the bedchamber, seven or eight gentlewomen, and three chamberers. And then there were seven ladies-extraordinary, as they were called, women who attended the Queen, but were not part of the paid staff. This is an important area for visualising Elizabeth's daily life and understanding her attitude to ladies around her in the Privy Chamber. For this was her refuge, away from public business, and there was little formal connection between chamber and council and the Privy Chamber. William Cecil, since he controlled the Privy Purse, was actually the main link between them all. I don't think it's entirely clear who exactly all these people were, but unsurprisingly, Cat Ashley was one, as you'd expect. There was Catherine Knowles, Nay Carey, daughter of Mary Boleyn, so there's a blast from the past. Catherine Knowles and Francis, her hub, I believe, lived not a million miles away from where I do and I think has a memorial in Rotherfield Grey's church, which I keep meaning to go and see, but never do. And now it's locked down, so I can't. The holders of household offices were all looked at as well, of course, and I'm going to mention just one of those. Robert Dudley, friend and possibly maybe perhaps lover of Elizabeth, was made master of horse. We will come back to Dudders later, obviously. By the time Elizabeth finally up sticks and went to London her procession was over 1,000 people strong but her entry was not as formal as the one we heard about last time though sand and gravel were put down in the streets. She avoided Westminster and took up residence in the Tower. There were two major events to be dealt with immediately Mary's funeral and Elizabeth's coronation. The former was a very grand occasion at Westminster Abbey, of course. And finally, the traditional, if slightly heartless, cry went up. The Queen is dead. Long live the Queen. A sort of official, sorry for your loss, move on. Meanwhile, people in the church surreptitiously cut pieces of banners as a memento. But the real show-stealer was the good bish, John White, Bishop of Winchester, who took aim at the new Queen and whose sermon included the phrase, For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Little air was sucked out of the abbey as several hundred people sucked in their breath at the same time and tried hard not to look at Elizabeth presumably being the living dog. People started putting on space helmets when White praised the new queen for wondering, How can I, a woman, be head of the church, who by scripture... And forbidden to speak in the church. And before long they were hit again by White as he thundered a warning that, The wolves are coming from Geneva! meaning the Protestants and Calvinists, of course. The crowd probably went for quizzical rather than panicky at this one, since it was not yet clear what religious path this latest Tudor would follow. Anyway, very eventful sermon. John White gained the reward due the brave souls in Tudor days who defied the omnipotent to arms, being very soon no longer in possession of his liberty and confined to his house. The wolves appeared to have come early for him. Now, Elizabeth was pretty much taking the line Mary had taken on her accession as far as religion was concerned, which was to keep the powder dry until Parliament could be called and produce a definitive answer but she did make one pronouncement in December which was to confirm that the Mass should be read, but it should be read in the English tongue using the English procession which was written by Cranmer. Now Mary's bishops had been appointed by her and had led the fight against the Protestant heretics and they were determined they would not have the same regrets as did Archbishop Wareham in Henry's day that they'd given in too easily and let their beloved practice be betrayed. This time round, they were on it, as wary as orcs. So, when Elizabeth came to organise which bishop would officiate at her coronation, there was an embarrassed silence. There was no Archbishop of Canterbury since Reginald Poole was dead, so the obvious candidate was the Archbishop of York, Heath, and he flatly refused. There were some that were too aged and some who were too absent, and some other refusals. Or there was the Bishop of London, Bloody Bonner, and Elizabeth was having nothing to do with him. So the word awkward began to be used. Now at the bottom of the list of bishops in order of rank was Oglethorpe of Carlisle. Fortunately, just before Elizabeth's foot fell off the bottom of the ladder, at this last rung the Bishop of Carlisle agreed. Phew wee! The day of the coronation was the 15th of January, 1559. We've already heard about the excitement of the procession from the Tower to Westminster the previous day, so no need to replay that. So let me take you then to Westminster Hall, where everyone gathered, and then walked across to the Abbey on blue carpet. I say everyone. Count Friar, the Spanish ambassador, was not there, in the full and certain knowledge that there would be hideous impieties on display in the church. The bishops were there, quite prepared to take the oath of loyalty to their monarch in a secular sense, as it were. Elizabeth was wearing crimson parliament robes and her hair down, sign of the unmarried woman, and then up to the cross of the abbey she walked, where everyone could see her. And in most respects, actually, I would have been perfectly comfortable about the service. No great innovations were made. The people were asked four times if they accepted Elizabeth as their queen, and everyone cried out, Oh, go on then. Obviously they didn't. They cried out, Yay! Yay! Excitedly and things. And on they went with the service in the normal way. Just a couple of wrinkles are worth mentioning. The first is that it was traditional when the new monarch arrived on the throne to offer a blanket pardon to everyone, and this was read out and then a text prepared. However, he did not pass notice that Elizabeth had excluded anyone who might have been involved in any sort of naughtiness, or planning for naughtiness, against her person. Now that sent a shiver down the collected spine of the Marian establishment, and a marked tendency to look nervously over one's shoulder. They needn't have worried as it happens, but still, you know, scary. The other wrinkle was the elevation of the host during the Mass, which you might see in a reasonably non-contentious thing, but of course was absolutely not the done thing Protestant-wise. The elevation of the host was the public face of transubstantiation. It seems there may have been something of a tussle there with Bishop Oglethorpe, and that Elizabeth had told him she didn't want any of that elevation stuff. Well, he elevated, and Elizabeth withdrew to a side chapel until he'd completed the service. Well, that was that then. Everyone was all smiles again, and the Queen left the church, grinning from ear to ear, thanking the people that pressed up to offer her their best wishes we get another glimpse of Elizabeth of the previous day's procession all warmth and personality, while ill Schiffenire stood with his arms folded huffily, reporting back that once again the Queen had exceeded the bounds of gravity and decorum. Well, I doubt Elizabeth or the people greeting her gave a tinker's curse, to be honest. A new act was in town. Right, and generally okily That is quite enough fun and games, everyone. Next time, we need to get serious again. And we need to talk about the Elizabethan religious settlement. And that's a story of jiggery-pokery and political shenanigans I can tell you.